Welcome everybody to Uncensored CMO. It's so good to have you with me. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for checking in. I've got a very interesting episode coming up. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but there's so much talk about the environment, about sustainability, about what we're doing, but it does feel like as marketers, we're not really leaning into the challenge. I don't see enough brands embracing the challenge of the environment, doing enough in terms of innovation, how we market, and how we create the kind of behavior change that uh, the world needs to see. Now, it strikes me that as marketers, we are in a very privileged position because we really are experts in creating growth, driving behavior change, launching innovation, you know, managing transitioning business models, etc. So it really should be down to us to try and identify how we address this crisis. Now, somebody that I know very, very well, Leo Raymond, he was managing director of Gray. Previously, he was chief strategy officer, and then he set up Gray Consulting. Here's a man with a real deep passion for how the marketing industry and business in general should be embracing the challenge of the environment. Now he's got a very unique perspective because he sees that uh, you know the environmentalist lobby are trying to sort of batter us all into submission. Um, whereas actually she, he thinks rather we should be seducing consumers into the kind of behavior change and adopting the kind of brands and businesses that are gonna help solve the problem. So I caught up with Leo to find out a little bit about his career to date, of course, but mostly to find out what it is he thinks that we as marketers should be doing to save the planet. He's very passionate about this. He's got a very clear point of view and he asked some pretty challenging questions, which I really enjoyed listening to and I think is well worth us all thinking about. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of role you have, you know, what level of influence you have, there will be something you can do to really help uh, kind of wake up business to the challenge that lays ahead and start to provide solutions rather than just kind of scaremongering and uh, doom and gloom. As, as so often we read about. So anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Leo Raymond. Welcome to the Uncensored CMO, Leo Raymond. Thanks for having me. Delightful to be here. It's good to see you again. And just for everyone listening, give us a quick introduction to your background and how did you get here? Well, I have been last four years running a consultancy for Gray at WPP. Last day is today, actually. Oh, really? Um, and then before that, I ran Grey London for a while. And, and I was really, I was a strategist, really, a planner most of my career when I first met you. I think I was actually running Grey London as CEO when yeah. I first met you properly. Yeah. But I've always had that kind of strategic, meets business kind of angle. And so that's led me on the path that I'm on to, to where we are now, really. Very good. You, you obviously, you've seen a lot of the ad industry, you know, strategy roles, you've been CEO, you've been consultant, that sort of thing. Where do you think the industry is at at the moment? How would you assess... Look, I mean, ultimately, I think the theme for me is always like one of reinvention. Personally, I've been lucky enough to kind of find ways to reinvent what I was doing over. That's why I stayed at Grey for kind of 10 years. I had a great time doing that. And the industry kind of sometimes gets it right with the reinvention and moves fast. And then other times seems to me to be slightly slow and behind the curve. I think that, you know, we're not really quite so freaked out these days about the shift to kind of a more integrated digital viewpoint of how you can do marketing and, and brand building now. That seems to have kind of become normalized. Mm. But there are other there are other bigger threats coming really like and we're going to talk about that today in terms of you know climate change and the environment that sort of thing. So it's funny though I I sometimes worry about where the sort of gravity and center of where's the where that energy is now. Where's when you look at kind of where are the exciting conversations happening? Where is the power? Where are decisions being made? Where where are people really kind of forging the future? I don't always know that that's necessarily in advertising companies that's very unfair there are somewhere that is true but you know it, 
I think we know that's kind of that shift of energy in society has gone slightly in different directions, hasn't it now? Well, I think, you know, your former colleagues at Uncommon, I think, have tapped into a bit of that, haven't they, in terms of, you know, creating the brands that everyone wanted to exist yeah. sort of thing and tapping, you know, yeah. changing Very it. smart, very yeah. smart crew. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's nice. And I think there's always room for, like, really bold and ambitious and highly creative firms. That's not going away. People mm-hmm. don't... The idea that you need to tell the story about your business or find a way to connect with people, that's not going anywhere. You know, if anything, we need it more. But it's that sort of big, broad middle of kind of not particularly creative, not particularly insightful. The stuff that kind of used to clog up your TV, but frankly, you don't tend to see it anymore. That's the stuff that I think is kind of probably finding itself on borrowed time, you know. I agree. And it feels like there's so much change at the moment. I'm sure everyone says that, don't they? If you go you talk to our parents or whatever, but that there are so many challenges we face. I mean, I, I do feel with a new prime minister, I mean, wow, she's got a lot on her plate, isn't she, with the stuff to tackle at the moment. Now, also, you know, you were CEO at Grey and then you, you set up Grey Consulting, didn't you? So you got an opportunity to work more strategically, perhaps upstream yeah. with many, many brands. What did you What did you learn about what is going on brand side for, you know, businesses? What are they uh, honestly, it was really right? fascinating. I mean, the reason I did it by the way was too much of the time we spent kind of being a bit irritated or we weren't quite finding the way to actually sell in the right idea and the reason was we were nine months too late to do it anyway like the decision had been made by the business to do such and such a you know a, 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 a direction and then we would be trying to turn it into an ad or whatever but actually you had to get in earlier and talk earlier about the forthcoming challenges that business was facing and and if you're in a kind of service receive mode, you can't do it. So anyway, we got ahead of that. And I found myself suddenly 12 weeks or 12 months, whatever it was, you know, upstream of where the original chats were happening. That was good. And we tried to sort of, we tackled some of the things that I think were kind of real problems for the marketing director, the CMO, whatever, that, that perhaps agencies didn't necessarily go after. So for example, we've put in all this amazing tech stack. We've got it all lined up. The lights are all on. The tech team are sending releases to us every month of what they can do now. Meanwhile, the poor marketing department are kind of, uh, I don't really feel confident about how to use it. And um, no one's really telling me, and I certainly couldn't tell you that I don't know how to use it. So I'm just going to kind of quietly get on with it. So we found the ability to kind of, that, that challenge of really helping change marketing from the inside by helping real people do things differently day to day. And you can apply creativity to that. You don't just have to apply creativity to like a, you know, a banner ad or a 30 second ad spot or whatever. I guess a really profound point because, I mean, I remember our time at Grey, for example, even then, and, and we had a great relationship. It would be, I, I think I worked out, I spent about 5 to 10% of my time on comms, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. And, and very much, you know, I'd have done the plan, I'd have, you know, allocated resources. And then I'll be working with you on effectively the, the, the end of the, the pipeline. But like you say, creativity can, you know, pull upstream I mean we'd have a big discussion on you know what ad we're going to do in the following year but actually I'd be worried about the, the impact of sugar on yeah. the nation's diet and how do we kind of you know we, we change been, that we weren't yeah. doing this by the way really not and no, no offense to my cool crew at the time but we should have been hitting you and your boss up yeah. like a year before that saying this is coming let's yeah. talk about what we're going to do about it some of its products some of its strategy yeah. some of its comms you know all of that but but if you're in receive mode, that's quite hard to do. So, and the best agencies aren't on receive mode, of course. But I think that's that's an aspect of it. I hired some like proper management consultants into Grey Consulting, frankly, to learn and kind of borrow their body language and figure it all out. And it amazed me there's some of the subtle shifts in how they think and work. There's lots that they do wrong. Don't get me wrong, by the way. That 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 industry can be quite like PowerPoint heavy. You know what I mean? And not really involved in actually making real things actually happen. People hate them. So there's that yeah. side. But but they are really good at listening and 
active listening and asking like punchy questions. We hired this woman from McKinsey for a while to help us on the first project. And I remember watching her in the client meeting and she was asking questions. I was like, wow, I'm not even operating at that level. So we had to learn to ask better questions and, and really listen to like, what's the problem actually here and dig around to find it rather than just take the brief and then struggle with how to work, figure out, you know, yeah. the great creative solution to that problem. So That is such good advice. I mean, strangely, actually, I remember very early in my career, I went and did gap negotiation training. And the thing they teach you right at the beginning is the art of the interview. And it's the reverse interview. So if you're going to go and see a customer, the first thing you always do, and just ask them, how's business going? What, what, what problems are you facing? What's the biggest issue on your mind today? Yeah. And it's just such a clever technique. I use it now a lot, actually. It's a really good technique because suddenly you go, rather than just sell them this campaign that I've got up my sleeve, you understand their problem first. And, and then, yeah. then, then you're going to come back with the right the answer. The bit I found hard, actually, initially, moving from like agency to consultancy was... I might, I might get into the problem, but straight away I would see like a poster in my head, like <laughs> straight into pitching. That's not a Because, you know, like being a fast pitcher and a convincing one was like Adlan or writ large, right? But I had to stop and say, maybe that isn't actually the sort of default answer to this problem. That's not the muscle to use. And be more sort of systematic about how you actually get into solving the challenge. That, that, that is really good advice because I think, you know, as a, as a client side marketer for many years, probably one, one you know, frustration with working with any ad agency, not, not, not picking on grey, but, you know, you would share a problem and you, and you get a TV script back. So we open on the scene here and, you know, you go, we're going to solve your problem in 30 seconds kind of thing. And, and you know, and, and one thing I desperately wanted was for the agency to think about what actually am I trying to do? What is the real business problem? Because if you solve that, honestly, you're going to be a hero. For and that. I think, you know, that's that funny because there's ev- endlessly in the marketing industry, there is this thing around what, how do we get more upstream? How can we understand the business challenge more? But there's also like a real insecurity about figuring out what, what even how to talk about business strategy, business problems, business issues, business objectives and metrics. And it's not because people aren't smart enough to do it. They definitely are. It's just a, it's the habit. It's just the habit that you do or don't develop as you go through that process. Well, I was very lucky because as a planner or a strategist that ended up running an agency, suddenly you discover what a P&L really was. And, you know, we, fielding weird stuff like someone making a complaint about an HR process from 10 years before you were in the job, you know, or law stuff or whatever it was. You saw a much broader range of what business is. And I think that's, that's what turned me on to it, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. And after that, you know, just being involved in writing a brief wasn't really going to be satisfactory. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's the, the CMO's existence, really, because, you know, you're dealing with HR issues, you, you're yeah. dealing with finance, you're dealing with strategy and that sort of thing. And the, the comms bit is often the, you know, the fun bit, you know, of course, but it's the, it's the final bit in the jigsaw, really. It's, it's solving all the other stuff that's so important. As, as you did your consulting, what are the issues that businesses, clients are facing that, that the industry needs to be aware, aware of? And, I, you know, I don't want to parrot back the ones that we all know on the table. I think, I mean, in reality, it's things like how do you hold on to talent? And what do you do about new work? How do you actually make hybrid working work? I had a hybrid leaving do. You had actually, a hybrid, yeah. Hang on. Hang on. You had a hybrid leaving do. <laughs> half of them were on video, record, pre-recorded. Half of them in the room. Actually, it was Did fine. they have drinks? It was right. fine. <laughs> I'm not sure they did. Um, but, you know, that's a real, like, how you adapt your business to that world. We all know that the real pressing issue for the next two years is going to be, you know, squeeze, squeeze household budgets and people's sort of sense of confidence and consumer confidence. Yeah. And for me, of course, I want to talk about, and we touch on the, the challenge really of how do you manage to do what we do in a sustainable world and how's biz- how a business really going to cope with the transition that's coming. And that's, I think, is kind of what yeah. I'm keen to talk well, about. Well, that, that, that's what I want to get on to because, you know, 
you know, we, we've been talking about the environment for some time, haven't we? Do you think the ad industry or the marketing industry per se is fully embracing the future challenges that we're all going to face? What I will say is that you'd have to be a pretty hard-assed person to not be concerned about it or not be aware of it. And I think if you spoke to every person in our wider industry on either side of the equation, as it were, you'll find a lot of goodwill and and good intention there. But it's not really working, unfortunately. And so there's a need for a shift in the way we think about how how we do that and what our responsibility is. And that's true of society as a whole, but it's certainly true of the marketing industry. And by the way, I've got a great love for creativity and for advertising and marketing and the power of understanding the customer and that relevance and that insight it's magical and and actually quite hard to to get good at you know it's not just it's not easy to do but I'm not sure it's being employed sufficiently or in the right way to make it make the difference that needs to be made and I, and I you know I'm evangelical about this stuff people who know me will know I get on missions and I go for it for a while and this is this is the one this is the ne- this is the one for the rest of my life though and one thing I'm really aware of I think is just that it's time to kind of make a difference because if we leave it too long we won't really be able to and you know we've got a lot of responsibility and a lot of power so let's use it yeah no that makes a lot of sense i I think you know thinking about you know we're in such a good position to make a difference aren't we because typically you know i think marketers don't often understand the influence they have you know over the company's resources over the products that get designed over the way they go to market the advertising that changes behavior there's a huge responsibility i think we have as an industry and something i'm passionate about is let's use our talent our resources our skills our influence our understanding of consumers to actually make a difference so given that, given that we're in a really good position to do that, what is it, do you think, that's stopping marketers really leaning in and making a difference? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can answer on a few levels. One of them is that there's just a degree of ignorance, unfortunately, about what needs to be done. And society at large, I think, finds it very hard. We all do to know exactly what's the right thing to do. Should you recycle or should turn the car off? Or, you know, what's the right thing to do? That's the same. That same is true of kind of the marketing industry. It's just not, they're not actually, the marketers in general, and there's evidence from the World Advertising Federation on this, are not as advanced as other functions in the business on understanding the implications of sustainability. And I, when I talk about sustainability, I'm talking in the wider sense, you know, environmental and social and governance to an extent. I suspect there's also a more fundamental sort of philosophical, intellectual challenge or emotional one, which is if you've been driving consumerism for like your whole career, and you know with greater or lesser extent we have both of us maybe it's quite hard to really face into the truth that mm, that's not necessarily unbridled good thing and that you know not all growth is green growth or good growth we can talk about that if you like later on but what do you do about that maybe maybe we best not ask the question so i don't know and i think it's fast to me it's really fascinating how many unfortunate situations we've seen recently where clients and agencies together produce stuff that gets accused of greenwashing either by activists yeah. and it's being taken down on the internet and we see it all the time on LinkedIn or whatever or by the ASA you know even even brands and companies that are pretty on it get their stuff taken out so that reveals like an information gap an understanding gap a competency gap that's there uh, and I think that's sad and kind of what I want to do is bridge the gap between the sustainability world the environmentalists those who understand social justice and kind of supply chains and the marketers who understand the customer and how you engage and inspire them and bring those two things together, I think they're too far apart at the moment. Mm. I mean, there's so much in there because you, you talk about the information gap. So what do we understand of the problem and the solution? You then got the entire way the market is created at the moment. You know, most companies are, are funded in some way, either public or private. Yeah. They want a return on their investment, right? Yeah. And then you've got an execution question as well in terms of how you actually 
deliver the solution without being accused of greenwashing. There's a lot in that. So taking those three things then, how how do we solve the information gap? Because I think you're right. I think we probably all acknowledge there's a problem and, and, and that's well known. But I'm not sure we know where the problem is, what's more important or less important. Yeah. You know, so h- how do we do that? And I think, you know, a lot of that's down to lack of confidence. So I, I know there, and I've had this experience firsthand in big corporate FMCG and other brands I've worked in the last couple of years on this topic. People are scared of revealing ignorance and they're scared of making a misstep that could result in greenwashing and getting fired or not getting another job afterwards, right? It's like, that's the real thing. And I think it makes them really cautious about doing proper investigation. So there's like there's a fear factor, which we need to, that, that's actually probably more that than it is kind of an information gap. Because once you look into it, and if you read into it, and I've been doing it for a year or whatever, you, you begin to kind of understand it in a much deeper way. Lots and lots and lots and lots of industries and verticals are sending people through these courses at Cambridge, Oxford, MIT, and others who are all, the information is there in the academic environment. It's quite hard to process and turn into day-to-day stuff, but, it's, but it is there. And you have to go and be curious and feed that curiosity. I suspect it's what probably what the digital transformation started out being a bit like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Probably a similar, a similar level of ignorance and uncertainty and lots of hype, lots of bullshit, lots of wrong decisions. Yeah. You remember what social was like in 09 or whatever. It's, it's not, I think it's not dissimilar. This transition is interesting to me, though, because not only is it like of the same scale or possibly even bigger. I think McKinsey reckon it's $12 trillion to be spent between now and... I think 2030, 2040, whatever, to kind of do the transition. But it has that quite a strong moral component as well, because if you digitise or not for your retailer, well, you know, whatever. If you save the planet or not for your children, that's, there's a higher, stakes are higher. I mean, of course, we think we'd all agree on the moral imperative. How do you create the actual change, though? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think this, is, this is the thing, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we'd all agree to, we want to, planet that's you know sustainable and we want the kids to have a great future but how do you create that change because I, I think that's where we as marketeers need to step in and deliver that kind of behavioral yeah. change you want to and see. I, I think you're right and I, my take on it would be that there's probably 10 100 times more expressions of what the problem is than solutions yeah. and so i've decided that i'm not going to do the doomist thing <laughs> if you stare into that abyss it's dark and deep and it, you may never come out i get that and i think we have to be realistic about the nature of that challenge but at the same time there's too many people sort of telling us about how bad it is. Let's find some active things that you can do now to make a difference. And what should the frameworks be? It's said like a true consultant. Or more broadly, how should you think about it differently in order to understand what your what your opportunities are and how we how we can step in? I think that's the that for me is the big shift. Yeah, that's the fundamental question I think we've got because the the system is built on capitalism, right? Yeah. So the incentive is sell more, sell more for more, you know, make more money and so on. And at the moment, I think making the green decision in most cases is a cost, isn't it? It's like a well, it's only going to be attractive to a few people that really care about it. It's not going to be mass market, is it? It might be a premium. So the green option is more expensive, yeah. you know, and in cost of living crisis, that's difficult, right? So how do you build, how do you build a model that incentivizes the right decision, that also rewards the right decision as well. That's right, and that, that's, that is at the heart of what I'm about to do next, really, which is that we have to find a way to commercialize sustainability. So it's easy to sort of point fingers at marketers who don't understand and haven't done enough due diligence, frankly, and digging into what, what's the right thing to do and how could they help. On the other side, on the, in the, among the sustainability community and environmentalism, they haven't thought hard enough about how you move from kind of shame and to seduction. Or moving from an understanding of the world that is kind of this is what has to happen in the supply chain we need to fix it we should change the way we go and that's important and vital, but you know changing the LEDs in the store in Manchester yeah it's good to do that 
but it's literally, I'm afraid, pissing in the wind relative to you know how many times you're washing your jeans in the washing machine at 45 degrees or whatever it is. That, that's really where the kind of problem is coming. And, and I think you have to then bridge the idea of how can I take what we're doing in supply chain when we think about sustainability and we think about ESG, how do we make it customer centric? How do we commercialize it? I found this thing, which is kind of one of the reasons I'm doing this, this jump, which is if you search customer centricity or customer experience or CX, with the word sustainability or ESG, they barely coexist on the internet. They're not really in the same, not entirely, but they're not really in the same sentence. That is bad. Yeah. That's really bad. Yeah. That means that people who are really thinking about what's happening in organizations and how to change it aren't thinking about how they can really partner and engage with a customer. And what, la- what, la- what happens in a very lazy kind of marketing community is this, which is uh, they don't want it. They don't want green. That's true, fine. Well then don't sell it to them as green, sell it to them as brilliant, and by the way, it's green. One of the examples that I really like is, is Back Market, which is, they're advertising at the moment, you've probably seen it. They sell reconditioned handsets, computers, that kind of thing, and probably more besides in time. Their ads don't say, buy this secondhand iPhone because you'll save five kilos of carbon or whatever it is. They say, why would you pay more for an almost brand new iPhone? Are you, cra- you know, are you crazy? And by the way, you know, it saves, saves the planet in the same time. But they've understood the fundamentals of like quality, cost, convenience. Like any good marketer, you you can't really compromise on those. And that's if we say to ourselves, we're never going to make the transition because people aren't prepared to compromise, and it's their fault. We've had it. My view is you have to if you haven't got the product, let's help you design the right product, but with a really good customer centric view that ties in with what's you know what's good for the planet at the same time i think that's i think that's the opportunity ahead really and we're just at the very beginning of that journey i'm very um heartened by apparently there are more people working in climate tech now than working in fossil fuel i'm not sure that's true but it was like 40 million apparently and all the guys in silicon valley have been spending all their energy and time engineering ads are now going to be thinking about climate that's probably a good a good move but it's that level of shift that's that's required, and every industry is going through it. And you know, it's time for us to step up as well. Really. Yeah, I think part of the challenge we've got is that the brands that are doing the really good work are the niche brands. There's not many that come. I mean, you think of Patagonia, maybe, yeah. but we need more kind of at scale, kind of creating this demand. But so. but who would you who would you look at as really role modelling? The kind of new business model and creating demands. There. And I think you've, that's the fact you've called both those components out are really critical. And you can, you know, that's partly why, by the way, advertising isn't the only solution to this problem, yeah. which is you need to think about the business model per se. How are you going to build it and make money? How are you going to change the way you make money to actually still stay alive and stay afloat? And make it work. And um, well, one question I was going to ask you actually, which I think is really personal to this, is it's easy to worry about the environment when you're wealthy, right? So yeah. you know, luxury opinions, as they yeah, say, yeah, yeah. right? It's it's easy to kind of pay the cost when you're wealthy, right? What do you do in a recession when we're just about to go into a recession? We'll probably by next month be in a recession. We're definitely in a cost of living crisis. Yeah. Everyone's wallets are being squeezed. And we, we want people to make a sacrifice for the environment. And so I, I think there's and a I tension think, yeah, there, isn't there? There is a tension there, which is kind of, if you, and if you stay in that position, you never resolve it. So let's say, okay, let's put everything on hold for two years and we'll come back to the then two degrees of global warming or three by the time we come out of it that, that, that is likely to happen if we're not careful. For me, you, you can look at it in two ways. One, it's an absolute blocker, or two, it's an opportunity. And actually, the best briefs, in a way, in marketing were always the ones that were almost impossible and very, very tight and constrained. That's what Silk Cut was all about back in the days, right? But how could you sell less but make more profit? How could you make 
buying secondhand more aspirational than buying new? These are the briefs clients and agencies should be putting together at the moment, I think. How can you build a huge new revenue model that's profitable, but based on creating a platform for secondhand pre-loved goods? I think the things that Depop are doing, what we saw eBay doing. eBay was good, Love Island, wasn't it? I I think it's a really clever way. It's kind of infiltrating it into the storyline. And it's kind of cool. Make my it kids, fashionable, right? Make it, yeah. I mean, my daughter uses Vinted as well. Loves it. Counts the pounds she's earning recycling clothes. It's the perfect model. And I think, so I think that it would be arrogant to say that it's only, and you know, the transition to this new kind of beautiful planet we're going to create can't be only for the rich and the elites. That's sort of what got us in this place in the first place, right? Because they're polluting way more. It has to be a just transition. It has to be one where everyone is taken along on the journey. I think if you're really thinking about it properly and strategically, your question is, how do I get just the right spec of the new reduced carbon intensity product or the one that hasn't got slavery in the, in the supply chain to make sure it's as convenient, has price parity, and is as good? Yeah. If you have to compromise on those things, that's a design flaw. Yeah. And some other company will come and eat you up because they'll get through it. And this is why I think it, it should be a marketing challenge because the problem is it, as long as ESG stays in the corporate department and never makes its way to the brand department, we're going to struggle because it's going to be seen as a cost. It's going to be seen complexity. It's going to be seen as regulation. It's going to be the doom. Yeah. Whereas what we need to flip the equation and go, how do we become more successful doing this? How do we get more consumers by doing this? And how do you know? How do you know? How That's do we right. become that, more successful? Hundred yeah, percent by doing. At the, at the moment, it seems to me that there is all that ESG literacy, which is in the financial community, you know, environmental, social and governance risk. It's really about risk management. It's about handling the PR, bad PR that might come. It's about spinning the story. And that's my point about not linking it to customer centricity. How could you turn it into opportunity? How does it become a competitive advantage? There are are firms today being born and growing who will be the absolute dominant Amazons of the net zero economy. And if you haven't got a plan that you're gonna get there, you're basically, you're not gonna be it. So you might have five years. But you won't have 10. And I think over time, the, the, the city will punish those companies. Customers will punish them as things get worse, frankly. Mm-hmm. And the investors will punish them because they're not going to put their money into what looks like stranded assets, to be honest. We touch on a really interesting concept because, I mean, if, if I put my economics hat back on, we were always taught, you know, to value a company based on the discount of its future cash flows, not what it makes today, right? And if you think about that, you know, that radically changes how you might value your current proposition by thinking about how the business, you know, how the world will be in the future. You know, and I hope that the marketing people can get their heads around that. I know the finance directors can, and that's the kind of why I think that the the building kind of the commercial modeling component into the the new business that I'm doing, which is that, which is you, you need to be able to understand the future value of your customer book. You know, that's really, really critical. And if you're, if you're basically, if you can't answer this question, you've got a job to do. And the question is, what's your clean share of market? Because people don't know the answer to that question. They've got dirty, carbon-intensive, slavery-heavy shares. That that you're you're dead long-term with that attitude. And not even if you even you might say, well, I'm here. I'm here for the next three quarters, and I'm only based on KPI on those sales targets, and I'll get I'll get figure that out. You are, but your career is not going to succeed because people are watching to see what you're doing. And I think what's interesting is truly actually with the competitive spirit amongst the uh, the marketing community about. What did you do in the great transition, Dad or Mum? You know, like it, that. That's but there'll right, be there'll right. be questions there. And if you're a marketing leader right now, do you know whether you're spending the right amount relative to your competitors on this stuff? How 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 well advanced your understanding of your clean share? Where's it going? This language, by the way, I haven't heard it anywhere. 
I don't think it's been coined, but it's because people aren't living enough in the inter- inter- sort of the intersection between those two worlds yeah. of sustainability and, and marketing and growth. So yeah, no, I, I think it's a fair challenge. I, you know, if you just read the marketing press, you, this conversation is not happening in the marketing press, is it? No, and I, you know, I'm, you know, the whole point of this podcast is bringing new ideas to yeah. people. Like, we need to push that, or and maybe I'm wrong, and that, I'm going to do the very transparent exploration of how these ideas land or don't land in the kind of corporate world. But we need to be. If the conversation isn't changing and you're not hearing new ideas, then we are properly in trouble. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we, because if there were ideas, were, I think people say actually lots of the ideas are already there. Have you heard of the Drawdown Project? No. It kind of tells you what you need to do to achieve. And the IPCC is doing the same thing. They tell you what needs to happen in what sectors, by what time to make a difference. We should be reading that stuff and thinking about it. But then, but then putting creativity in and saying, well, how would I turn that into a really aspirational idea? You know, that's the... There's so much opportunity, actually, for so much great creativity. I might be wrong, but my perception of it is you've got you, there's there's a handful of people that are calling that out and are putting plans together, but it's not nearly mainstream. Or or it's not, it's not, when you do your brand plan, it's not featuring heavily in terms of how you're thinking or or companies aren't, you know, announcing their new direct-to-consumer models based on it i mean there are, there are some examples we've talked about some examples something in terms of back market i mean we were chatting about liquid death as well you know clever and another innovation Super software inspirational market. you know but, playing on the old tropes of what makes things sell yeah. but done in a, but pointing and redirecting that demand towards the right kind of products but i think if you said to the average person name five brands that are creating a sustainable future you run out pretty quickly. And actually, loads and loads of companies are doing loads of work, not least because they know they're now getting increasing regulation and reporting requirements to the to their investors and to the banks and so on, pension funds, to explain what they're doing. And because they know there's other firms coming up right behind them that are slightly, slightly younger, slightly kind of ahead on kind of digital revolution and now figured out the next big advantage is to be thinking about how to be sustainable. So that, I think that landscape will, will shift quite a lot in coming, to, in coming years. Now, you're, you're going to put your money where your mouth is. or you, I say you're going to put your money where your mouth is. You're going to put your talent where your mouth is. Probably the better way of saying it. My mouth and my talent. You know, exactly. <laughs> Connect up the mouth and talent. That'd be a nice thing. There we go. You know, and, and you make your big decision because you're leaving the, the warm embrace oh, of the WPP and the, and the security feeling, and, yeah. you know, all that kind of thing. And, you, and you're going to, you know, basically commit to, you know, making this, this big yeah. change. Yeah. So how are you going to make a difference to this and how are you going to influence the people that need to make a difference yeah it's a good question so you know what i'm going to basically commercialize esg and sustainable practices but i'm going to do it with all that great talent that we've all had from kind of how to understand the customer but but i'm not going to do it at the comms end i'm not going to be an ad agency that people can do that and that's brilliant i'll help the man it's important but we need to be rethinking what is the business model what is the business strategy where is the latent demand that hasn't been uncovered in a way, they're like consultancy questions, but they're not really. They're actually creativity and innovation questions. And, and that, that's the, what we're going to look into and stare into it, but with a level of confidence and understanding about what really makes a difference from a science-based point of view to, to make that impact. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to, but I want to leave it. It sounds a bit dirty, really. I think that's maybe why it isn't happening much. I'm going to do it by being customer-centric and by thinking about money. Because there's a lot of people, like we said, the shaming, the stick, that I think if you want to move firms on, and I think you know, business does have a role to play. It is very powerful, actually. But we have to sort of find a way that it can become commercially palatable. Now, I don't think you necessarily... People say you can't... You have to... You can't... People say it would be good if you could decouple growth from emissions. Very true. Big challenge. But not necessarily not doable. So you know, if, what, what if we were to increase customer value or profitability or ARPU whilst decreasing the amount of 
resources taken out of the earth? What if it's a virtual thing? What if you're buying your sneakers for your Roblox character rather than buying them for yourself? I mean, that's a big shift, but we can do that, and that is happening. I saw that um, I think Nike made $150 million in NFTs for sneakers or something last year. So it's, it's, these things are like potential opportunities we could really exploit. I love the idea, by the way. It's a bit mad, but you never really buy, you don't buy pairs of sneakers anymore. You buy one pair, you buy one sneaker for life. And it's constantly refurbished by Nike with, with mm. you know, circular materials. It keeps going. You never really have lots of different trainers. You have kind of one that you keep. Well, that, that I think that could be kind of cool. I right? think that's really interesting. I mean, uh, as we, we recently completely refurbished our house, and I've been shocked actually, having just bought a lot of consumer goods for the house. You know, washing machines and dishwashers and fridges and freezers. I would say seventy-five percent of them have broken down. Yeah. One one of them in particular has broken down four times. And and I did, you know, we we bought properly good gear, you know, high quality German manufacturer, you know, the whole thing. But it's incredible the amount of obsolescence that still exists in even you know high end goods, and that's just that doesn't feel sustainable. No, we should be buying things for life, it's right? Kind lifetime of, and that's going to become bad business. Right now, it's arguably unethical, more than arguably it's unethical, but probably you can get away with it. But that, but regulation is changing around that, and you know, manufacturer liability for ongoing use of products and what they do at end of life will become much more normal than it has been. Planned obsolescence is very, it's going to become very unfashionable. One thing I've struck, struck me was like, you know, years ago, Burberry, 10 years ago, Burberry figured out that, hmm, tech is fashion, you know, and they had all their stores suddenly had all screens everywhere and you could buy all stuff online. It was kind of cool. Sustainability is kind of cool. And amongst certain communities, it's becoming, you see that, you see people who are looking at sort of style magazines, photography websites are also like really focused on sustainability, partly because it's show, showing off. Great, let's harness it. Let's harness it. Let's do it. That's the the way forward. That, I think, is just the challenge and opportunity here, is that the the, the environmental lobby seem to be anti-capitalist, don't they? They seem to be riling against the system rather than using the system. I think the opportunity is to use fashion, you know, use technology, use... You know where the demand is to, to create the change. That's right. And there's a, fight against yeah. it. There's a, and there's a really big debate. And by the way, the answer to this debate is it depends. And it depends. Should it be green growth, i.e., you can have growth in the economy, it's palatable, people want it? Why should someone living in some appalling kind of situation where they have to go to a food bank, you can't tell them you can't have these things or you shouldn't have affluence? On the other hand, there's a school that says, no, it's all about degrowth. We've got to, we've got to scale back. You can't be having that. You can't be going there. You can't be doing this. And the answer is it sort of depends, really, I think. We, there's definitely too much consumption in the north, global north, in the UK. We consume, well, not if you're going to a food bank in Liverpool. But if you're living in Chelsea in your SUV, you've got too much consumption going on. Uh, finding a middle between that is going to be the, where the really hard part lies, I think. But like I say, if, like, if you're building Depop, for example, or you know, eBay secondhand fashion, I think growing there is probably a really good thing. Yeah. And let's do it, and it's palatable. If you're like mining and there are kids involved and you're kind of making a lot of fossil fuel based products and you don't care about what happens tomorrow, I think probably you should degrow a bit. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it comes down to like, why would you really tell somebody driving a white van they can't fill up with petrol? So there's, there's an underlying challenge around how we find energy sources. But thank God, in some ways, this current, this current energy crisis might well lead some fresh thinking about, A, well, putting on more jumpers and B, yeah. being more renewable. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? How do you turn the current challenge into an opportunity yeah. from an environment point of view? Okay, so what we, let, let's round up with, you know, if you're, you're a brand owner listening to this podcast, you're a marketing director leading a brand, what is your advice to what you should be thinking about right now to future-proof your brand and, and make it more sustainable? What should you be doing now? I think you've got to, you've got to figure out 
to win in the net zero economy that's coming, what's my play? There are people in your customer base who represent that already. They may be buying your greener products already. What can you learn from them and apply to the rest of the base? But fundamentally, and, and don't, give up at, don't give up at the kind of comms end or the brand positioning purpose end. Forget it. Find out what drives and what, what needs those people are and apply it much earlier in the food chain. Like bring the story of the customer to supply chain people, to the sustainability department. Don't leave it in the hands of people writing reports for the city and corporate affairs. They're smart, but they don't know how to commercialize and persuade you to buy and sell stuff. So take that journey on. It's your responsibility. There's so much opportunity out there. You've got to think differently about what that means. It's, it's like a reframe and a rethink. And if you get it right, you'll be laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, this, this is what makes me excited about this conversation is that we as marketers are expert at doing this, right? This is, this is what we've been trained to do. So it's on us to kind of create the opportunity and, and yeah. deliver against it. Yeah, it's all there for the taking. Amazing. No, Leo, thank you. Top advice there and fascinating conversation. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you really enjoyed my episode there with Leo Raymond. I thought he has some fascinating points to make and he really does have a passion for the environment and how we can help solve uh, the problems that we all face. Um, If you'd like to hear more from the Uncensored CMO, then why not go and subscribe? Uh, You can do that over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Never miss an episode. Um, If you'd like to leave me a review, I really do appreciate it, honestly. It makes such a difference. Remembering, of course, that five is the best, um, but it does make a difference. If you'd like to uh, get in contact with me, you can do. I'm over at Twitter, at Uncensored CMO, and I'm on LinkedIn, of course, uh, John Evans. That's John without an H. I do genuinely love to hear from people that listen to the show, so please do get in touch. Um, And I hope you'll uh, join me next time. So until then, take care.